Thank you for downloading this sermon from Holy Trinity Reformed Church. If you live in the vicinity of Mooresville, Indiana, come join us as we rebuild Christ's Holy Church out of the ash heaps of American fundamentalism and evangelicalism through repentance, revival, and reformation. If you would like more information about Holy Trinity Reformed Church, or if you do not live in our area, but would like to support this ministry, please visit our website at reformedholytrinity.org. Gracious God, we come before you with humble hearts. Just as Daniel did, acknowledging our sins and the sins of our forefathers. We recognize that we have not followed your commands and we have turned away from your ways. We pray, Lord, that you would look upon us with mercy and forgiveness, just as you did for Daniel. We know that you are a God of compassion, slow to anger, and abounding in love. We plead for your forgiveness and mercy. We pray for our nation and its leaders, that they may lead us in righteousness and justice. We pray for our community, that we may live in harmony with one another and show your love to all those we encounter. We also pray for our families that we may grow in love for one another and live in obedience to your word. Help us to raise our children in the ways of the Lord, and may they come to know you and serve you with all their hearts. Lord, we pray for our church that it may be a beacon of light in our community, sharing the good news of your salvation with all who are lost. We ask that you would guide us in our service to you and help us to use our gifts and talents to build your kingdom. We thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness and your love. We know that you are always with us, and we pray that you would continue to guide and direct us as we seek to follow you. All this we pray in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Turn to John chapter 14. We love you and thank God for you. We thank you for your faithfulness, for your love of Christ, and for your love of the brethren. And I want to encourage you in hopes that we would all grow in our faithfulness, grow in our love, and grow in our service to Christ and his church. So in your bulletin is a brief little letter of encouragement. And then this message here this morning, we're returning to John chapter 14 because even though I wanted to specifically look and address this concept concerning the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, when he said in verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I also want to give us some fuller context and a broader sense of what's going on here in John chapter 14 to help us in our understanding of the exclusivity of Christ. And so we're going to be looking in John chapter 14, and may we be revived here this morning in faithfulness to Christ and in faithfulness to one another. 
Jesus is making these statements in John chapter 14 after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So these statements are being made on the verge of his betrayal, his arrest, his scourging, his trial, and crucifixion. These statements are after the Passover with his disciples. These statements are after he washes their feet to teach them about sacrificial love and servanthood. These statements are after he identifies his betrayer. These statements are after his giving of the new commandment, saying, By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. These statements are right before his arrest, trial, and crucifixion. Jesus knows his hour has come. As a matter of fact, in a previous chapter, in John chapter 12, in verse 23, he says this very thing. The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. And then he makes application to us by saying, He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. And then, later in that same chapter, his soul is troubled. And he prays, Father, save me from this hour. But then he says, for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven and said, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Well, the multitudes that were around, the people that were around, they heard that. And the voice as it thundered, and they said, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. And then the apostle John says, this he said, signifying by what death he should die. You see, Jesus knows that his crucifixion is near. And even though his gospel message was the declaration of his atoning death, no one today wants to believe in Jesus or believe the gospel of substitutionary atonement. No one wants to look to the cross. No one wants to see the gory aspects of suffering and pain and blood and death. You see, all throughout his ministry, the motivating factor of the multitudes was the physical restoration of Israel or some other physical need, right? They wanted to be healed. They wanted to be fed. Matter of fact, Jesus one time even sarcastically scolds them about, yeah, you're only here for the food. Well, one of the motivating factors was the physical restoration of Israel. That's what they were looking for in a Messiah, someone who would bring back their power, someone who would bring back their place in the world. 
Someone who would bring back their posterity and make Israel great again. It wasn't that Jesus didn't have concern about those things. But he knew from which and from where those things came. You see, the problem was, is that they did not actually believe in him, and they did not believe in the way in which salvation was to come. They did not believe in the way of the cross. Yeah, they wanted the life. They wanted the resurrection of their lives. They wanted the resurrection of their power. They wanted the resurrection of their prosperity. They wanted the resurrection of Israel. But they did not want the suffering, the cross. You see, they wanted to believe in their version of him. They did not want a suffering Messiah. They did not want to journey to and through the cross. And this is the first aspect of the gospel message. What is the gospel? The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But it all begins with death. You see, before there is resurrection, before there is new life, there must first be death. Life is only to be found in the faith and the cross of Jesus Christ. Not in blind optimism. We want to... Go to one extreme or the other where we have blind optimism. And even today when things are burning all around us and we just want to be like, oh, well, whatever will be, will be. and It'll all be okay. It'll all work out in the end. Bunch of naive worldviews sticking our head in the sand, which is faithless. Of course, then there's the other extreme, too, to be all anxious and fearful and scared of your own shadow, which is also faithless. But Jesus knows that the time of his trial is coming. His crucifixion is coming. The multitudes will flee. The multitudes will change their mind instead of saying, hell Hosanna, they will say, crucify him. And in the midst of all of this, that is being fulfilled and is taking place in John chapter 14, Jesus makes this statement to his disciples. This is after he even predicts. They're fleeing, and Peter's denial of Jesus, and immediately Jesus says, in verse 1, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Let not your heart be troubled. This is the word of the Lord, and it is eternally true, and it is the message that Jesus had to his disciples in the midst of their trials, tribulations, and persecutions. And it is the message that we should hear today, let not your heart be troubled. 
believe in God, you believe in God, believe also in Christ. This is the context of what is going on where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is good news. Therefore, do not let your heart be troubled. Notice the full context of what is said here. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Well, this was a little confusing to the disciples. They're not supposed to let their hearts be troubled because God, because Jesus is preparing. He's making preparation. He came to declare his kingdom. He preached about his kingdom. And he says, I'm going to go and prepare that place for you. And so Thomas says to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going and how can we know the way? And that is the context of Jesus' statement. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is speaking to his disciples and reassuring them that even though he is about to leave them, even though they are about to see all their hopes and dreams and desires, crumble right before them even though they are to become be overwhelmed with despair and hopelessness he is reassuring them that they should not be he is reassuring them that they should not be faithless he is reassuring them that they should not be anxious he is reassuring them that they should not be troubled Because this is part of the plan. This is his purpose. This is his place. This is his preparation. And of course, Jesus' words is not just for his disciples then, but for us today. In Revelation chapter 3 and verse 12, in the letters to the churches, Jesus says, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more, and I will write on him the name of my God in the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. In Revelation chapter 21, John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. 
And then he says, right. For these words are true and faithful. Another way of saying, do not let your heart be troubled. These words are true and faithful. So in this passage, Jesus declares that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Why should we not be troubled? Why should our hearts not faint? Why should we not be weak in faith? Because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. See, he's not just a guide. He's the way to the Father. He is, a way, he is the way to the kingdom. This is why Jesus told his disciples to pray to the Father. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the way to God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven is Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is not just a truth. He is not just about knowing the right things or knowing the right person. But he is the truth. He is the right thing. He is the right person. So in this world where truth is relative and subjective... Jesus is the ultimate truth that we can hold on to and not be troubled. He's the life. Not only does he offer eternal life, but he gives abundant life here and now. This life that Jesus offers is not just about living forever, but about experiencing a fullness of life. That begins with his entrance into our lives and continues throughout all eternity, experiencing a fullness of life that only comes from being in a relationship with him. Jesus is not just offering us a way to heaven, but a new and transformed life in him, the way that life should be, because he is the life. He's not just a prophet or teacher. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is, not, he, he is the only way to the Father and offers us abundant life here and now. We must believe in him and follow him if we want to experience the fullness of life that he offers. And as a side note, let me say that as we complain about the life that is being imposed upon us by the dark forces in this world. Let us say that Jesus is the life, and so how about we just start living that right kind of life, ordered the way that it should be in Christ, in opposition to all that's going on in the world. Let's not be troubled Let not your heart be troubled, but rather let it trust in the very fact that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and let him lead us to the Father. And in that knowledge and confidence that he is the way, the truth, and the life, then let us live that way. Let us live that truth, and let us live that life. 
But also we see in the context of this chapter, we see second of all in verses nine through or seven through eleven, we see that that we see the knowing that knowing the Father is through Jesus Christ. Jesus says, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Well, now another disciple is confused. And Philip says, Lord, show us the father and it suffices us. And Jesus said, have I been with you so long yet you have not known me, Philip? Do you really not know who I am? He who has seen me has seen the Father, so how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. The disciples were troubled by Jesus' impending departure. He was to be crucified. But Jesus assures them of his love and his provision. Jesus said that if they know him, then they know the Father. They can have confidence that they have access to the Father through him. They can have confidence that they are in fellowship with God the Father by being in fellowship with Christ the Son. You see, this is a package deal. John says, That which we have seen and heard we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Why? Because later he would say, Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Anointed One sent by God. And John says he is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. And he who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So Philip asked Jesus to show them the Father, and Jesus replied that whoever has seen him has seen the Father. Whoever has seen him, whoever knows him, knows the Father. Whoever is in fellowship with him is in fellowship with the Father. Because we see that Jesus is the manifestation of the divine. Jesus said that he and the Father are one, and whoever has seen him has seen the Father. Jesus came to reveal God the Father to us and to reconcile us to him. That's why it says that God sent his only begotten Son. That purpose was in sending his Son to bring us to God. Knowing Jesus is the key or knowing Jesus, excuse me, is the key to knowing the Father. How do we know God? We know God through Jesus Christ because God manifested himself in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ. He was the God-man to restore us. Back to God. In Hebrews chapter 1, listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. God, who at various times and in various places 
spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his son. So if you hear the son, you hear the father. Whom he is appointed heir of all things. Through him, through whom also he has made the world, who being in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Paul in Colossians says this, when he's talking about the faith that he heard by those in Colossae, and how that he did not cease to pray for them, that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that they would walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, for all patience and long suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. And it doesn't stop there. He, talking about Christ, has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the image of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Now that is a deal. That's a lot to consider. All of that's been given to us. You see, one of the worst things, one of the most horrible things that has happened to Christianity, both in the decline of the church and also in our own individual personal struggles and then in the consequences that that's having upon the world is that we just do not know who we are. We do not know who we are in Christ. But Paul lists all these things of who they are. No wonder they went and turned the world upside down, right? If you are convinced that that's who you are, world, look out. We need to become convinced of all those things that Paul said concerning the church there in Colossae. But my point was to get to this where Paul says that Jesus is the image of of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. You see, to know Jesus is to know God. To know Jesus is to know the Father because the Father and the Son are one. They are unified. So Jesus explained that he is in the Father and that the Father is in him. And the words and the works of Jesus are from the Father. They are united in purpose and action. And so, believing in Jesus is the way to the Father. Jesus declared that he is the only way to the Father, that Jesus is the essential step to knowing God, to knowing the Father and having eternal life. The truth of Jesus' claim is evident in his teachings and his miracles because he is the perfect revelation of God in the flesh. 
And knowing him is the key to knowing God. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we can have access to the Father and enjoy eternal life. So let us believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and follow him in obedience and love. And then notice in the next section of this chapter, the power of believing in Jesus. Don't let your heart be troubled. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Do not let your heart be troubled. Jesus is our access to the divine, to God. Do not let your heart be troubled because of the power of believing in Jesus Christ. This is one of the most powerful passages in the Bible that talks about the power of believing in Jesus Christ. And as Protestant believers, we know that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we emphasize that. And we are trying to revive that understanding today. But this passage also reminds us of something that even we, who are trying to restore historical Christianity, have forgotten. And that is the incredible power that is available to us as believers in Jesus Christ. Not because we inherently have this power, but because of the power of Jesus Christ. All authority and all power has been granted unto him in heaven and on earth. And that is our mediator who grants us access to God. Think of the power. See, as we explore this meaning and how we can apply it to our lives, let us understand, first of all, that there is power. We sing about it, power in the blood. We sing about all, all these hymns that have, talks about the power of Jesus Christ, the power of salvation, the power of his prophetic office, the power of his priestly office, the power of his kingly office. And we sing it, and then we say, well, there's just nothing. This world's just going to go to hell in a handbasket. Getting worse and worse. No, Jesus Christ possesses all power and all authority. You see, there is power in believing in Christ. And we need to understand the power of believing in Christ. The power of faith, the power of belief. Jesus said that that faith that comes from him is so powerful that if you just had the size of a grain of a mustard seed of faith, the faith of Christ, just if you just had a little bitty speck of it, a little bitty dot, if you had just that much, you could say to the mountains, be removed and to be moved over here and it would be done, Jesus said. Jesus also said that the works that he did, that his followers would do greater. What was the works that he was doing? We get focused upon the means. Don't we? And so we automatically start thinking miracles. Those were means Jesus used 
for the works that he was doing. Those were not actually the works. What work was he primarily doing? Revealing the Father to the world. That was the primary work. What was he doing? Proclaiming the gospel. Instituting the kingdom of God. And so we're going to do greater works, he says. We're going to do greater works in spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth. We're going to do greater works in the growth of the church. Listen, look around the world today and see what kind of a mess it's in. I'm talking about real legitimate miracles. At some point in time, there's going to be another revival. There's going to be another reformation. There's going to be another turning of this world upside down by the disciples of Jesus Christ. Making God's will in heaven to be done on earth with the establishment of the dominion of the church over the world. And there's power in Christ, and therefore there is power in prayer to Christ. He says, ask anything in my name, and if it's according to his will. Now, when we talk about asking in his name, we're talking about according to his authority. Not according to my wants, not according to my desires, not according to my preferences. It's not my will, but it's thy will be done. That's the kind of praying we are to do. The praying in Jesus' name. Where we can pray something in his authority, by his authority, that is under his authority. And we are called to believe in his name. We are called to pray in his name. You see... In call, in the implications of this in our lives is the call to believe in Jesus Christ, which is the foundation of our salvation, the starting point of our spiritual journey. Then there is the call to follow Jesus Christ, which is the imitation of Christ in our lives and the obedience to Christ's commands. And then there is the call to pray in Jesus' name, which is the submission to Christ's authority, to trust in Christ's promises. So this passage here in John chapter 14 verses 12 through 14 reminds us of the incredible power that is in Christ. And that is to be upon his people, to be upon believers, to be upon the church. It reminds us of the amazing things that Jesus did while he was on the earth and even greater things that will be done through the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, believing in Jesus is not just about securing our salvation, although praise be to God for our salvation. But it's not just about that. It is also about living a life that is empowered by the Holy Spirit to do great things for the kingdom of God. And what are those great things? Things that glorify God. Not things that glorify us, not things that glorify ourselves, 
but things that glorify God. So let us believe in Jesus, follow him, and pray in his name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son, and not let our hearts be troubled. And then there's the promise of the Holy Spirit in verses 15 through 31, where Jesus records his final discourse to his disciples before his arrest, trial, and crucifixion. Jesus promises the coming of the Holy Spirit who will dwell in believers and empower them to fulfill their mission. And what is our mission? Jesus said it is to go into the whole world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all things whatsoever he has commanded us. And we're told in the last part of the Great Commission is an extension of what's being told to us here. Let not your heart be troubled. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, even to the end of the world. And so, when we think about this passage, we see here love and obedience, Jesus' commandment to love him. And he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Keep my commandments, if you love me. In chapter 15 of John, Jesus says, If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Paul says, Any man that will not love the Lord Jesus Christ, and what does it mean to love the Lord Jesus Christ? It means to follow him, right? Let him be anathema maranatha see it is the love of christ that constrains us therefore we count everything else but dung paul says so that we might win christ and so he he expresses this idea of love and obedience John, the apostle, later would write that by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. We have this idea today that the commandments of God are grievous upon us, that he's just trying to, he's just trying to take away all of our fun. No. It's what's best for us. He's looking out for what's best for us. So we see that love is expressed in obedience. We see here in this passage the indwelling of the Father and of the Son, the Holy Spirit as a helper and a teacher. And therefore we are to have peace and comfort. God has sent the Holy Spirit so that we would have peace and comfort. And he promises us peace and peace that passes all understanding. This is the peace that Jesus gives. This is the peace that the Holy Spirit brings into our lives as our comforter. Not for our hearts to be troubled, but to be comforted. This is our assurance and hope. Look in verses 28 through 31. Our assurance and hope is that Jesus' departure dictates his return. He will depart, but he will return. 
And we have this assurance of Jesus' love and the hope of eternal life and the Holy Spirit as a witness to us that Jesus will perform these promises. The promise of the Holy Spirit is a gift of God to all believers. He is our helper, our comforter, and our witness. He empowers us to love and to obey Jesus, to live in peace and comfort, and to have assurance and hope in the midst of trials and tribulations. So let us embrace the Holy Spirit, not be as those that the Apostle said in relation to the Jews who were always resisting the Holy Spirit. Let's not be as those unbelieving Jews. But let us embrace the Holy Spirit and allow him to work in and through us to glorify God and to advance his kingdom. You see, John chapter 14 begins with Jesus comforting his disciples and urging them to trust in him and his father. Assuring them that he will prepare a place for them in heaven. Thomas and Philip expressed their confusion and desire for clarity. Prompting Jesus to to declare himself the way, the truth, and the life. And to reveal that whomever has seen him has seen the Father. He promises that his disciples will do even greater works than he has done. And he encourages them to pray in his name. Jesus promises the gift of the Holy Spirit as their advocate and teacher and tells them that he will not leave them alone, but will come to them. He also speaks of his impending death and resurrection and urges his disciples to love him and to keep his commandments. He promises that those who love him will be loved by the Father and that he will reveal himself to them. This chapter then ends with Jesus urging his disciples not to be troubled or afraid, but to trust in him and his peace. Therefore, all of these statements by Jesus in the beginning and at the end is so that we would not let our hearts be troubled. And in the midst of what we are witnessing in 2023, this same message is true to all believers. Do not let your heart be troubled. So we can take away several important applications for us today. First of all, to trust in Jesus. Just as Jesus reassured his disciples to trust in him and to not be troubled, we today, we Christians today... And take comfort in knowing that Jesus is always with us and will guide us through difficult times, whatever they may be. If we see persecution, it's the very same thing that his disciples here in John 14 saw. And his message to them was, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Secondly, belief in the Father. Jesus said that whoever has seen him has seen the Father. Christians should strive to know God more deeply by studying his word and seeking to follow his will in their lives. And then third, obedience to Jesus. Because he said that if we love him, we will keep his commandments. And as Christians, we should strive to obey Jesus' teachings and live according to his will, which is revealed in Scripture. And we need to understand the Holy Spirit's role. Jesus promised to send the Holy Spirit to be our helper and our guide into all truth. And as Christians, we should rely on the Holy Spirit's guidance in our lives and trust in his power to work through us. And then last, prayer. We need to be a people of prayer. 
Jesus promised that if we asked anything in his name, anything by his authority, anything according to his will, he will do it. Which means we really need to seek and understand what the will of God is. So Christians should not hesitate to bring their request to God in prayer, trusting that he will answer according to his will. And what we see here in John 14 is a powerful reminder. Powerful reminder. As Jesus has this care over his disciples, and he's encouraging them not to let their hearts be troubled, It's a reminder of Jesus' love for his disciples and for us. And as Christians, we should take comfort in knowing that Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. And that even in the midst of that preparation, all of these things that he affirmed in this chapter should cause us to have peace and comfort. And not to be troubled. Because we should have assurance and confidence that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. How do we get through 2023? How do we get through all the devastation, delusion, and destruction, and deception that's going on in this world? How do we get through it? Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. And that's how we get to the Father. Lord, we pray that you would help us to trust you in a day and age where we are being bombarded with every reason to fear, every reason to distrust, every reason to be a skeptic, Lord, we pray that you would not let our hearts be troubled, but that you would increase our faith, increase our confidence, increase our assurance in Christ, knowing that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and the way that you will be revealed to us is through him. And so we pray that that would be accomplished in us. Through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.